Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Testing, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Hi, Nathan. Light. Hi, Josiah. Okay, so tonight uh, we will be starting a new series going through Titus. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you might have heard uh, Christian mention the fact that this is going to be a golden exposition. Um, all that really means is that we're going to be sticking pretty close to the scripture and teaching the text as it's written. So as we go through this, this letter, as we go through Titus in the coming weeks, you can generally expect Jeff, Ethan, and myself to read a passage of scripture and explain what it means. That's pretty much what expository preaching is, pretty straightforward. So with that being said, the, uh, the passage that I have been assigned for tonight is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now uh, you might notice that that's a pretty small amount of text to preach a sermon on, and that's because this being the first message in the series, I have been tasked with providing an introduction to the letter. Um, so just to give a general background and context as to like why this letter was written, who was it written by, who was it written for, that sort of thing. So without further ado, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 1 through 4, I'll go ahead and read for us. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus, our Savior. So that'll be our passage for tonight. Um, but before we really dig into it, um, like I said, just some background context that I want to give us just so we can have a little bit more of a broader scope as we approach this letter and um, have a little bit more, uh, more understanding of what's really going on behind the scenes. So first question I want to address is the question of authorship. Who wrote this letter? Well, the author of Titus introduces himself in the very first word of the very first verse, Paul. Uh, if you grew up in the church, or if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably already know who Paul is. But tonight, I'll be going over some of the major events of his life, just so we can, you know, just have a, a wider scope as we, as we approach the rest of the series. So, Paul, whose Jewish name is Saul, um, he was a Roman citizen born in Tarsus, and he was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was later Israel, who is the father of the nation of Israel. So Saul, Paul, he's a Jew. Um, and the fact that he was born in Tarsus is going to be important later on because he is a Roman citizen. In his early life, he was very, very dedicated to the Jewish laws and their customs. He studied under, under a man named Gamaliel, who was one of the most well-known and highly regarded Pharisees at the time. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul describes himself as advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. That's what Paul's life was defined by um, before he came to Christ. Extremely zealous for the Judaic laws and for the traditions of his father. Um, just one example of this uh, in scripture we find in Acts chapter 7, 
Uh, we'll be talking quite a bit about Acts tonight just because it kind of details the story of Paul. Um, again, who is the author of, of the, uh, the letter we're actually going to be studying. So anyways, in Acts chapter 7, one of the church leaders, whose name was Stephen, was put on trial before the Jewish council. When the Jews got upset at his speech, they decided to stone him, and while they did so, Saul um, stood by, giving his approval. He was also given authority to arrest and persecute believers, and he is described in Acts chapter 8 as ravaging the church and as dragging men and women who believed off to prison. Um, but in Acts chapter 9, we see Saul be humbled by Jesus, and this is the story of his conversion. Um, this is from Acts chapter, Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so, if they, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So, after his account encounter with Jesus, Saul obeys. He continues on to Damascus, and he stays there to wait for the Lord's command. Um, during this, uh, this encounter, he, um, it's described as like scales being put over his eyes, and he was blinded. Um, after he was healed from this blindness, he then joins the disciples who are there in Damascus, and immediately starts preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And after just a few days of this, the Jews who were there were enraged, and they formed a plot to murder him. Uh, his colleagues, who were the other disciples, the other believers in Damascus, they learned about the plot, uh, and they helped him escape the city of Damascus by lowering him in a basket through a hole in the city wall, and he was able to escape the plot to murder him. Uh, so, after that, he left, and then he stayed in his hometown. Well, actually, before that, he went back to Jerusalem again, um, started preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, and again, the Jews tried to murder him. So, after Jerusalem, he goes and stays in his hometown of Tarsus, and he teaches there instead for some time. So, after being in Tarsus for about ten years, the disciple Barnabas went to look for him, and when he found him, brought him back to Antioch. Together, they taught, the, they taught the people at Antioch for a whole year, and by the way, it was during this time in Antioch that Christians began to make a name for themselves, namely Christian, Christ one, or one who follows Christ. That name, that label for Christian started in this year that Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, so a little fun fact, I guess. But once Paul and Barnabas were done in Antioch, they joined up with Mark, who is the author of the Gospel of Mark, uh, and then Paul went on to start his first missionary journey. Uh, this journey took him from Antioch and Syria to Cyprus, to Pamphylia, to Phrygia, to Lyconia, and back to Antioch. I probably mispronounced a couple of those names, but that's not important. We're not Greek. We don't know better anyways. <laughs> um, this journey was a total of about 1,400 miles on foot, so it's a lot of walking a lot of dedication to this mission. Uh, they planted many churches. There are stories of them casting out demons and evil spirits. They performed miracles and ultimately led many people to Christ. 
And again, Paul was threatened for his life many times because of what he was teaching. And one time, he was even stoned by the Jews until they thought that he was dead and dragged him out of the city. And then he got up, shook, shook the dust off of his shoes, and kept preaching. <laughs> so, um, after this, uh, after his first missionary journey, he returns to Antioch and rejoins with the disciples there. They rested for a while, and then they went up to Jerusalem to take part of a council that was, that was taking place there. It was at this council that it was established that non-Jewish converts to Christianity did not have to uphold the Jewish laws the same way that the Jews historically would have had to. Um, and after this council, Paul and Barnabas actually separated due to a dispute. Um, and Paul goes on a second missionary journey with another disciple whose name is Silas. He's also joined by a man named Timothy, who, if you're familiar with the New Testament, First and Second Timothy are addressed to this man named Timothy. Um, so Paul's secondary missionary journey, again, sees him travel through places like Lyconia, Phrygia, Galatia, Asia, Macedonia, Achaia, and then finally back to Jerusalem. So this time it was about 3,000 miles on foot, and over the course of about three years, Paul was again very successful in winning over new believers and uh, planting churches. Uh, he even revisits some of the churches he planted previously on his first journey. Uh, there are stories of him getting arrested and then beaten and then miraculously released. Uh, he caused riots. Um, well, the Jews caused the riots because of him, but he was then arrested for causing those riots, uh, brought to court, beaten again, and then finally released, and he returned to Jerusalem, shortly beginning his third missionary journey. And this third journey saw him revisit many of the same places as before, strengthening and encouraging the believers there. Uh, he, again, brings many people to Christ and even brought a dead man back to life, which is a very interesting story. So, after this third missionary journey, which is the final one recorded in Acts, uh, he meets up with the church elders who are in the city of Ephesus. Um, and while he was there, he was led by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. The, 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 uh, the church leaders, elders in Ephesus, they knew that if he did return to Jerusalem, he would be arrested by the Jews. Um, so they begged him not to go. But even knowing this, this is Paul's response to the, to the, uh, the church elders begging him not to return to Jerusalem. He responds by saying, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. So I just want to take a moment to notice Paul's faith here. He knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested again. And these are the same Jews who have threatened his life countless times, even beaten to the point where they even believed that he was dead, but he still got up, and he's still going back to that place, back to Jerusalem. He feels the Holy Spirit compelling him to go, and he goes. So, when he finally returns back to Jerusalem, he spent many days with the elders there, encouraging them. Um, but when the Jews saw that he was back in Jerusalem, again, they caused a riot and tried to kill him, unsurprisingly. Uh, but they were stopped by a Roman commander who then arrested Paul. Um, 
While Paul was in prison, the Jews, quite unsurprisingly, plotted to kill him again, uh, knowing that he was a Roman citizen, however, and also fearing for his safety, the, the Roman commander who arrested Paul transferred him to another city called Caesarea. Um, probably not pronouncing that one right either, but um, he, uh, let's see, he stayed in prison there for two years waiting for a trial. And after finally getting his trial, after two whole years of waiting, uh, he used his citizenship Remember, he was born in Tarsus, a Roman city. He's a Roman citizen. So he used that citizenship. He had the right to appeal to Caesar and be transferred to Rome. So he appeals to Caesar and he gets transferred to Rome. And after setting sail for Rome, because currently he's on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, um, so he has to sail, sail through to get to Rome, the ship that was transporting him there got shipwrecked on an island called Malta. They stayed there for three months before setting sail again. Uh, and there were more miracles and, and uh, signs performed there as well. Um, highly encourage you to read the book of Acts, by the way. It's very interesting. Um, so finally, he arrives at Rome and was put under house arrest by the Roman guard. Now it was while he was under house arrest in Rome that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and Colossians all of which are part of the New Testament. So if you're familiar with your Bible, you've probably heard those names before. And this is where the book of Acts ends, um, which basically I've given a summary of so far. Um, but we do know from various other sources that Paul was likely released and went on a fourth missionary journey, um, this time to Spain. And most scholars agree that the letter to Titus, which again, you can read the sign behind me, is uh, the series that we'll be going over over the next few weeks. So it was after he was released from prison, from house arrest in Rome, and before he went on his fourth missionary journey, that he wrote Titus. So it was many, many years after being converted, many years after his encounter with Jesus on the road to, road to Damascus. So now that we know a little bit about who the author of this letter is and the life that he's led up to this point, um, some of the highlights of his life, the next question I want to answer is this. What authority does Paul have? You know, as we as we read this letter and you know consider how it should impact our lives and consider you know what we can learn from it and apply to our lives, why do we take this letter as God's inspired word? And why do we let it have that authority over us? Well, in the uh, in the opening verse in Titus, Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle here literally means like messenger, or somebody who has been given authority to be a delegate on behalf of another. In this specific case, Paul has been given authority by Jesus himself to be the one to share the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and what that means for us. And in fact, this is what Jesus says about Paul in Acts chapter 9, shortly after his encounter on Damascus. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Those are the words of Jesus Christ himself. So, when Paul describes himself in Titus chapter 1 as an apostle, this is what he means. A man chosen to share the good news. There are a handful of requirements that you, you would have to meet in order to be an apostle. Namely, a direct calling and authority from Jesus himself, which Paul has. Having encountered Jesus after his resurrection, Paul has also done that, 
and you have to have been given teaching and been taught by Jesus himself. Paul has also done that. And even beyond these three things, um, there are various others, but uh, we're not going to get into detail that, with that tonight. Um, beyond these things, Paul also performed signs and miracles, which are proof of his anointing with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was also affirmed and accepted by the other apostles, and he was uh, also accepted by the general body of believers at the time. So, also something, just as a little side note, it's not possible for anybody today to become an apostle or to even have the same authority that an apostle had, um, but we still see that happening. I mean, consider the, uh, the Pope in the Catholic Church or the Church of Latter-day Saints, also called Mormons, Joseph Smith, um, Brigham Young, those kinds of characters, and also with movements such as the New Apostolic Reformation, they still claim to have the same authority as an apostle in many ways. So if you see anybody claiming that authority, it's best to avoid them because it's not possible to have that authority. And this is the doctrine of like the closed canon of scripture, which is not what we're here to talk about tonight, but it is important. So just to further drive home the point of Paul's authority here, uh, let's take a look at verse three, uh, back in Titus chapter one where it says, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. There's a couple points I wanna, I wanna talk about here, uh, just in terms of the authority that Paul has. Uh, first of all, another way that you can translate the word entrusted here is believed, as in God himself gave Paul the words to say and the words to write, and God believed that Paul would be a, a truthful and accurate messenger of the words that he gave him, right? So we, we can have confidence and assurance as we dive deeper into the letter of Titus that these words are backed by God. They are, they are the words that God inspired Paul to write, and we can trust that. Um, and not only that, it is also by God's command that Paul taught the nations about Jesus and wrote this letter. If Paul's mission were of his own will and of his own plan, it would have failed a very, very long time ago, um, and Christianity would have died out. But since it is from God, Paul has succeeded in his mission, and because of that, we have his writings available to us today. And we should take those writings seriously, because they are the Word of God. Um, so now that we have talked pretty extensively about the authorship and authority of this letter, I want to talk a little bit about who it's addressed to. So, clearly the, uh, the letter is titled Titus. Um, that's because that is who the intended recipient was. Um, in verse 4, Paul addresses the letter saying, To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Titus was a Gentile or a non-Jew, somebody who wasn't a Jew. He was likely Greek. Uh, he was converted to Christianity by Paul, um, and we read that as Paul says, my true son in our common faith. Paul is the one that brought Titus to faith. He was one of the members at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, he was also with Paul on his third missionary journey. Uh, he was also very involved with the church in Corinth, and he was the one who delivered uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So again, in your New Testament, if you read 2 Corinthians, um, somebody had to get that letter from Paul to the Corinthians, that man was Titus. Uh, Titus was considered one of Paul's closest and most trusted co-workers, 
He was a man who was effective in ministry, and he was proven to be a faithful follower of Christ. Sometime after Paul's third missionary journey, Titus and Paul traveled together to Crete, uh, and they planted a church there. After a while, Paul continued on to continue his missionary work, but Titus stayed behind in Crete to continue the work there. So, where is Crete? Let's talk about that a little bit. Crete is a Greek island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of in the middle, it's south of the mainland Greece. Um, when Titus was written, most people on the island believed in Greek mythology, which at the time was very widespread and very common for people to believe in at the time. And the highest of the Greek gods was Zeus. Um, you may be familiar. Uh, according to their mythology, the Greek mythology, um, Zeus was, a, was once a man who then became a god. And he spent his time seducing women and lying in order to, in order to get what he wanted, wanted from them. And the Cretans honorated, honored and venerated his shady and womanizing behavior. And their culture, because they were worshiping him, was very heavily influenced by this. In fact, this is what Paul says about them in verse 12, which Ethan will lead, lead us through next week. But um, this, this is what Paul says in verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. So, it's the word of God right there. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, but so the danger of all of this, of them still worshiping the Greek god Zeus and still having such a heavy Greek mythological influence on a culture at the time, was that rather than honoring God as the sovereign creator of all things, the Christians there were still allowing their view of God to be shaped by their existing view of Zeus as a man who became a god and was still influenced by human tendencies. And as such, the Christians there and the people on the island of Crete at large continued to adopt and mimic those tendencies. That's because um, mankind Humans, all of us, we are made to worship. We were created and designed specifically to worship God. Um, all of us worship something, um, but in a fallen world in which we live, um, we have all chosen to worship other things other than God. Um, and we have a tendency to become like the things that we worship. And although the Christians at Crete and at the church there claims to worship the God of the Bible, their worship was tainted by their culture, and they continued to worship Zeus and mimic him just with a different name. And so, knowing this and seeing and hearing about the behavior of the believers in Crete, Paul writes this letter to Titus. Uh, he wants to, he has a few, um, few points that he wants to make in this letter wants to establish what a leader in the church should look like, what kinds of people should we be bringing up and putting in a position to teach and lead others. Uh, he talks about how to maintain a pure and consistent teaching and doctrine. He also talks about the importance of doing good works and living godly lives uh, so that Christ might be known through our actions. He also makes the point that as we grow in our knowledge of God and our faith in Christ, we will, uh, we will worship him and become like him. And the purpose of this letter is to teach us what that looks like. Um, what a life in worship and submission to Christ looks like. What are the outworkings of that? What kinds of work should we be doing? Um, so, now that we have a, 
a fairly comprehensive background of this letter. Uh, let's just take a little bit of a deeper look at the first four verses here. So there's quite a number of things to unpack here in just the first four verses, which I'll reread one more time. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So, again, I'll reiterate this point. Paul gives the purpose for writing this letter in the very first verse, just after introducing himself. He says, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Um, from what I understand, this is kind of like a, a thematic statement for the letter as a whole. Paul aims to achieve a few things uh, that we can tell just from this one verse. That the reader might grow in their faith and in their knowledge, and that by doing these things, they will naturally lead more godly lives. And likewise, our mission as uh, the SALT leadership, um, my mission talking to you today, and Ethan and Jeff as well, um, is that all of us will grow in the same way. We will grow in our faith, we will grow in our knowledge, and in doing so, inevitably become more godly people. And I also just want to take a moment to notice that it takes both faith and knowledge to live a godly life. You know, many skeptics outside of the church might say that our faith is blind, that we believe in some pie-in-the-sky God who will come one day and make all things right. Well, part of that is true. God is coming. He is just. He is going to make everything right and set everything back into his created order. Um, but the difference is that our faith is not blind. We don't believe in some mystical man in the sky. Our faith, our belief, is grounded in truth. You can study things like prophecy, or even archaeology, or even philosophy, personal experience. All of these things are, um, all of these things point to Christ. If you're interested in learning more, we actually just wrapped up a series called Truth and Love, and it's recorded, it's on Spotify, you should check it out. Um, but, knowledge aside, it also takes faith to lead a godly life. Um, in James chapter 2, James says this, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. See, just the knowledge that God exists to know about God is not sufficient. Um, it's not even enough just to believe that Jesus was his son, and that he died on the cross, and that his death and resurrection really happened. Those are the facts. Those are good. That's true. However, the other piece of this is faith, which involves an actual internal acceptance of these truths, and... Um, uh, to actually internally accept before God that Christ is the payment for your sins. You have to accept the fact that you're a sinner, and you have to accept the fact that you need to be made right by God, and that only Jesus Christ can do it. And it's when you accept those things and put your faith in those things that you are saved. It's not just a knowledge about those things. There's a distinction. Um, and then to live by faith is to live your life according to the knowledge, according to that truth. And that's the reason that Paul writes this letter, to further our faith and to further our knowledge so that we can lead godly lives. And we do so, as Paul continues, 
in the hope of eternal life. Um, and if you've been around the church at all, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, John 3.16, um, which is just a nice little sum- summary of the gospel, basically. Um, God sent Christ to die for our sins so that we can have eternal life. Uh, it's our hope in eternal life that we do all these things. Um, this is a hope that will never perish. It's eternal. And it will never put us to shame either because it's grounded in the truth of a God who does not and cannot lie. And what this means for us is that no matter what kinds of trials you face in this life, no matter how terrible your circumstances get, you can still trust God, you can still serve Him, you can still love Him, you can still live a good life, a meaningful life, and a fulfilling life, even if your circumstances are miserable. And I'm sure I don't need to give you examples of what a miserable circumstance looks like, we all live in a fallen world, we've all experienced it. Um, but my, my encouragement to you is that the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in God is eternal and it's grounded in the character of God and God cannot lie. Um, so as you grow in your faith, as you grow in your knowledge, as you put that faith in Jesus Christ and you look forward to that eternal hope that you have in Christ, the natural product of all of this um, another way you could say is that the proof of all of this is the life that you lead. It's not the life that you lead that earns you these things. It's these things, you know, it's faith that then lead to good works and salvation. It's not faith plus works that then leads to salvation, if you get what I'm saying. Um, but again, as you grow in your knowledge, as you grow in your faith, as you put that faith in Jesus Christ, um, outworking of that is a godly life. And Paul's letter to Titus um, details what that looks like. What does a godly life look like? So, um, as we continue on in this series, uh, we'll learn more about that, what exactly that looks like. Next week, Ethan will walk us through the rest of Titus chapter 1, which talks about what the leadership in the church should look like. And as you hear that, I don't want you to think that, like, oh, that's not me, I'm not a leader. Those things apply to everybody. They just should be exemplified specifically in the leader so that everybody can live that sort of life too.